Well, good to be with you guys this morning. Todd just has to ask me anytime, and I'd love to be with you. It's really an honor. I really love what you guys are doing. But I have to apologize, because I have to start out our morning with a bad word. I know, it's not something you should do in church, but to me, it's a word that's always been a bad word that I have to share, because it really sets up my message. And that bad word I want to share this morning is the word, no. Now, I just need to tell you something about myself. I am a fun-loving, energetic loving person, right? I I like the word yes. In fact, just say the word yes with me. Sounds so much better than that bold word no, but the word no has become part of my vocabulary these last three years in a way that I never thought it would be. In fact, I use the word no like 25 to 50 times a day, and it's because my wife and I have three children under the age of three. Pray for us, will you? (laughs) And so this word no, which has never really been one of my favorite words, is a word I use like all the time as my daughter thinks she's superwoman and she's at the top of the stairs and she believes that angels will carry her from the top to the bottom as she jumps down. But you know what happens? She's going to get hurt. So I scream out at the top of my lungs the word no, or as they think that technological equipment and apple juice should be a good pair with each other, and so they grab the apple juice and they pour it on the DVD players, on the MacBooks and things like that, and Dad just looks at my kids and he says, no, or recently, and this is an absolute true story, my son took one of our family Bibles, and I'm not gonna tell you what he did, but just let's say the word desecration is a good word to use for what he did to that scripture, so pray for him. His name's Zion, and we hope the Lord will get a hold of his heart. You know, no is something I, I say every day of my life, I wake up in the morning and I just say, no, no, no. In fact, my wife and I say it so much, it's almost like a symphony, like, no, 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 no. You know, we say the word so much because we have these children who have no fear of the world and we have to use the word no to kind of like fence them in and to give them kind of a verbal boundary of where they can go and what they can do and what they can't do. When I think of that word no, I actually think it's one of the first words that as human beings we typically recognize. That word no is actually a loving word for us, most of us, because what that word no says is this, I love you, so I'm going to kind of mark off appropriate from inappropriate behavior. I'm going to mark off the safe zones from the unsafe zones. I'm going to tell you what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad, what's black and what's white. I'm going to tell you what is yes and what is no. So many of us grow up and we hear that word no and it actually constructs our world for us. It tells us who to vote for and what to believe and who's a safe person and who's not. And that word no comes out of a heart of love that literally as parents, we say no to our children because we want the best for them. We care for them. We want them to be safe and have lives of flourishing joy and happiness. But there's a problem with the word no that you know all too well, that the word no can actually detach itself from its ultimate goal and become just a rule in itself. And you know that happens when you're a parent, when you say no, and they ask you the question why, and you follow it up with the answer, because. Have you ever done that? No, why? Because. Because the rule has become a rule in itself. That word no has detached itself from its ultimate end. And in fact, many of us know what we should not do as Christians far more than what we should do. The word no hems us in. 
It makes us safe. It makes the world predictable. It separates us from the others. And the word know is something that shapes our morality and our understanding of God. But that word know can be used so often and so much that it actually negates the ultimate purpose of the know, which is to shape us into a particular type of people to live out a particular way of life in the world. In fact, if you go around and you ask people, what are Christians about? What are the people at Holy Trinity Church, what do they want to be about? I bet a vast majority of people in our nation would say, they're not about this. They're not about that. That we've become so associated as believers with what we're against. In fact, there was a famous book recently called Unchristian, which was a sociological study of this new generation's beliefs about Christianity. They went around and they asked people from 18 to 30, what do you believe about Christians? What is it Christians inspire you to think of when we say that word and you think of believers in God? And what these people from the Barner Research Group actually came up with was some pretty startling information. What these people who said they, what they believed about Christianity was, they believed that Christians were anti-homosexual, right-wing Republicans, judgmental, hypocritical, naive, and everything. That if you went around and you asked people in our culture, what do you believe about Christians? A typical answer that was given is not what they're for, what they're passionate about, what they want to change and be about in the world, but the answer was they are about some almighty no's. They're the tongue-clucking, finger-waving people who are very much against certain things. And we have reason to be against certain things. I mean, God gave us commandments. Thou shall not, right? We don't do adultery or steal or follow other gods. It's not that we are not people who don't believe in the power of a no, because Christianity is not this just relativistic, postmodern, believe what you want to believe religion. It's about truth. It's about finding God and searching after him. But the no's have an ultimate purpose that I want us to get in our minds today, because I think what no's are supposed to do is to shape us into certain types of people who live out a yes type of life. And what I want us to focus on is not so much the no this morning of God, but the yes. Because what happens is, in history, when we focus solely on the no, we forget what the no is ultimately for. This is what happened to the Jews, as God called Israel to be a separate nation, to be specific to him only. So he gave them laws, he gave them food laws and ritual laws and celebrational holidays and different acts that they were supposed to do and things that they were not supposed to associate with. He gave them a set of yeses and nos. But over time, the only thing that got paid attention to in the mind of those who followed the God of Israel were the nos. We're not supposed to eat certain foods. We're not supposed to talk to certain people. We're not supposed to touch anything that's unclean. We're not supposed to say certain words. We are the people of the no. But the purpose of God giving the law, the rituals, the Torah to the people of Israel was not just so that they could be associated with the no, but they could be a yes. They could be a yes to a dark and dying world of what it's like to live in relationship with Almighty God. Yet the light of the world that Israel was so, so, supposed to be ended up just being a flashlight in people's eyes, shining to them their own darkness and their inability to see. Israel became a nation that focused so much on what they were not supposed to do that they forgot what the ultimate goal of those prohibitions were about. And so we arrive in the time of the New Testament and we see this radical prophet named Jesus who's going around 
And he's disrupting people's understanding of what yes and no should be. He talks about food, and he says, don't you know when you eat, it's not what goes inside of you that defiles you. It's not the type of food that you eat, but it's what comes out of you that defiles you. Envy and lust and judgment and anger that what God is ultimately about by giving you prohibitions is to shape you into a certain type of person who has a heart supple to God, who can transform the world into the image of its creator. But you're focusing so much on what you should not do that you're forgetting what those should nots ultimately lead to. So you're a person who thinks that you're justified and you're right before God because of what you do not do. But he says, you've forgotten what the psalm tells us, that God has chosen you as a people to show off his mighty acts. He's gathered you, Israel, not because you are beautiful or more special or better than anybody else, but God's called you because he wanted to start particularly with one group of people to shape them in the image of God so that they would be a light to the nations. But instead of being a light to the nations, You've been inspired by your own beauty and by your own religion. And so Jesus comes and he critiques and he challenges the nose of the people of Israel, which starts an ignited switch in the minds of his followers. And what we see in the book of Acts is what was initiated by Jesus, this God who is now searching for the lost, for every person, now comes into the book of Acts, where we see the Holy Spirit doing some amazing things. The Holy Spirit actually goes from this group of people, this Jewish group who follow Jesus, and does something fascinating. It starts to show up in the lives of people who don't follow the rules, who are not part of the right yeses, the right crowds. They are the people who, as our text says today, were the outsiders, the people who were forgotten and neglected. They were the Gentiles, the goyim, the people like most of us. But in Acts chapter 10, as Todd taught last week, we see a famous passage. There's this guy, Cornelius. He's a Roman centurion. He's a Gentile, yet he's praying to the God of Israel. He's a God-fearer, which meant he probably knew of the traditions of Israel, probably understood them a little bit, venerated them, and was interested in them, but was not yet circumcised, maybe was never going to be. And he's a person who the Israelites, in any time in their history, would have said the word, no to. He would have been somebody who would have been cast away on the outside, kept away from the center of worship and religious life in Israel. Yet in Acts chapter 10, this pagan centurion who's open to there being a God, a single God of the universe, starts to pray, and God hears his prayer because he's a righteous man, and God gives him a vision. And God, therefore, gives Peter, one of the chief apostles, a vision. And the vision is this. It's a fascinating vision. He gives him a heavenly barbecue to look at. He has him look into heaven, and he sees all different types of animals, clean and unclean. And the prohibition is he should not do that because he's Jewish. So Peter sees all these, and he knows he's prohibited from eating them. But he hears God say, what are you waiting for, Peter? Kill and Eat. And what does Peter do? He gives the best no he knows how to give. I can't do it, Lord. No way. Ever since I was a youth, by the way, in the scriptures that taught him to eat certain things and not eat certain things, I cannot do it. But he says, what I've made clean, do not call unclean. That what I'm doing in the world is I'm expanding the yes of God's love and grace. So do not say no to what God has said yes to. So Peter, therefore, goes back 
Because that vision is a sign that God's gospel is now going to the Gentiles. It's going to the people who are kept away from God's covenant and his promise. And he goes to Cornelius' house and he sees the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of people who you never would assume God at work in their lives. And Peter sees God at work. And he realizes something that I think we need to realize today. That God is not always waiting for us that God is the missionary God, that God loves the world more than we could muster and love the world. And God wants to use the church, but God uses the church to help with his ultimate mission that God is ultimately on. So what God does in the book of Acts, he goes before the church, he goes before their prejudices, goes before their fears, goes before their insecurities, goes before their hatred. He goes before anything that they have because the God who we know is a God who is on the move, who's listening to the righteous hearts of people, even though they might not have the right language and the right theology and the right actions, this Holy Spirit shows up at a person's house who just says, God, are you possibly there? And Peter sees this. And we know from the New Testament that Peter had his own prejudices. In fact, in the book of Galatians, Paul says, when the chief apostles and the religious rulers from Israel came down, and Peter saw them coming, and Peter was hanging out with some Gentiles, some non-Jews, but when he saw these very high-esteemed religious Jewish leaders, Peter got up from the table he was eating at, and he moved to go sit with the Jewish people. And Paul says in Galatians, I opposed Peter to his face. He got in his face because he said, why are you letting this peer pressure challenge you to see what God is actually doing among the Gentiles? So Peter is actually having to go right up against his prejudices, and he sees God at work in Cornelius' life and the life of his family, and he baptizes them. But now Peter's going to have to do something interesting. He's going to have to go to Judea, the land of the Jews, in Acts chapter 11, and explain what he's done. He's going to go have to be near the people who set the rules and obey the no's and follow the laws and are very devout in their devotion to God. And Peter's gonna have to explain what God did. And you can just imagine how terrified he was. I mean, these were the people that he knew and looked up to. He was a righteous, focused follower of the Israelite law. And Peter goes back to these people, and if you read this passage, what I think is fascinating about it is that you can almost hear Peter's anxiety when he reads it. Peter's going to these people, and, and, and Peter starts, and he's like, so Peter started from beginning in Joppa, and he laid it out step by step, and then you can just hear the anxiety. Well, recently I was in the town of Joppa praying, and I fell into a trance, and I saw a vision, and it was something like a huge blanket lowered by ropes in the four corners, and he's just telling these people what's going on, and he's like, and I saw animals, and this is God doing this, and, and, and finally he gets to the place where he says, so I started in. Before I had spoken a half dozen sentences, the Holy Spirit fell just as he did the first time on us. And then I remembered, and he's looking at these people who are the kings of no, and he said, I remember Jesus' words. John baptized us with water. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So I ask you, if God gave the same exact gift to them as to us when we believed in the Master Jesus Christ, how could I object to God Peter goes from 
dealing with his prejudices, dealing with his insecurities, dealing with his worldview that says God only acts in this way, that the world is distinguishedly caught up between yes and no, and he sees God act in the lives of somebody that nobody would have predicted that God would have acted in. And then he has to go explain to people what God has done. But he uses experience as his only answer. He says, God did something that I would have not wanted, that I would have expected. God showed up in a powerful way, and how can I object to God's action? Peter realizes something that if you and I realize this morning, we actually have our lives changed, that our life is supposed to be following the action of God, even if it takes us into places that will cause our communities to doubt whether or not we're sane. I learned this story specifically from my friend Felicia. My friend Felicia, uh, she worked in Las Vegas. And she worked in Las Vegas in a ministry called Triple X Church. It was a ministry that was specifically ministering to people who were in the sex industry. And she worked there for about a year, and God grabbed a hold of her heart, and she met people who were in the industry that uh, were definitely part of the glorified no. No way could God be with those people. These are people who exploit their bodies for profit. And after being in Vegas for a year, she came back and she had a burden in her life for God to do something in the lives of people that none of us would assume God could ever hear their prayers or work in their lives. So she came to me as her pastor and she said, Ian, I I have a vision for a ministry to strippers. And I said, well, that's great. Praise God for that. And she said, well, can, can you possibly fund my ministry to strippers? I go, I don't know if the elders are gonna like a line item in the budget that says strip clubs, but we'll try. And I said, we'll see, I'll, I'll do my budget and we'll, we'll look. And so I said, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna do that. So we ended up getting her some money. And what she does is she goes and she actually puts these kind of gift packets, packages together. And, and she's a cosmetologist. And so she gets some girls down and they put makeup and they, they, they offer to do the girl's hair and they bring them these packages with like, you know, food and bottled water and notes and prayers. And, and then they actually go to strip clubs. It's only women who are allowed to go. And, uh, uh, and they go to strip clubs and they actually go inside the clubs. And they sit down and they pay for girls' time. They give them $20, $25 and say, can I just sit with you for 10 minutes? And I just wanna, I came to bring you a gift and, and just let you know. When that word got public that this is what they were doing, I had two elders at my church who wanted to fire me. They called me and they said, how could, how could you do this? How could you support someone to go into a place like that, to touch people like that, to be with people like that? And they're good men. They, they thought we were corrupting the youth and that we were leading to sin and that we were glorifying what they did. And, I just went to my top leader and I said, are you okay with this? He says, I'm okay with it, and then we'll work it out. So I had to explain myself to my leadership, but then God has a great way of giving you ammo against people who doubt the movement of God into some kind of dark places. And so this is a story that happened out of this. After we had the hardship of somebody not wanting us to go to those groups of people and to touch them and be with their lives and to love on them and support them and, and to kind of bring the ministry of Jesus to them, well, we kind of got a rhythm, and uh, I would just give her money. I would support her. We'd, we'd come together. We'd pray before she went. And then it was one night 
she texted me at two in the morning. She said, can we meet in the morning tomorrow? I have a story I need to tell you. I said, okay. Well, that night before, we were just praying that God would get a breakthrough in the lives of some of these girls. And so I said, meet me in my office in the morning. We got coffee. She said, well, Ian, you're never going to guess what happened. I said, well, what happened? So we, we went to this one uh, strip club down here in North Orange County, and this day, like any other day, we walked in, and um, we just were going to, we had $100 to get girls' time, just to kind of sit down with them and talk to them. And she says, so there's this one girl who, she looked Asian, and um, for some reason, I just felt the Lord telling me to go, go to her. And so I said, can I just get your time? And she was very bubbly and excited. She could hardly speak a word of English. So she sat down. And she said, and I started talking to her, and I said, well, t- tell me, you know, what's going on in your life? You don't sound like you're from America. Where are you from? And I said, well, I'm from Thailand. She's like, really? She's like, yeah. And she said, you know, I, I never would have wanted to do work like this. But I don't know how to read. And I'm foreign. And so this is really the only thing I could think of to do uh, to pay my bills. And Felicia said, you know, not judging, just, yeah, you know, I understand. I understand how that paying your bills is hard, and I understand why you probably turn to this. And she said, my friend Felicia said to this girl, she said, you know, I just want you to know God loves you. And God cares about you. And God, God wants to do amazing work in your life. And that's why we're here. And she said, oh, you believe in God? So yeah, she's like, and my friend Felicia had a cross on it. And she, she grabbed that cross. She said, I've seen that before. She grabbed this cross from my Felicia on her, her neck. And she goes, oh, yeah, where have you seen that before? She, well, she's like, you know, raised Buddhist or agnostic. She says, you know, for some reason, when I, when I get off work in the morning, I drive to my house. And on the way to my house, there's a building with one of those crosses on it. And this Taiwanese stripper says, I don't know why I do this, but... I pull into the parking lot, and I get out of my car, and I just get on my knees. And I just sit on my knees for 45 minutes to an hour. And I get back in my car, and I go home, and then the next day I go back to work. My friend Felicia said, well, you know, I think God's drawing you there. I think God's meeting you there. And so now my friend Felicia meets with this girl weekly to teach her how to read. She's still stripping. But is it possible that the God we worship is the God in whom all the promises are yes in Jesus Christ? And he's a God who will break rules and regulations, who will actually go into a strip club, who will be with a Taiwanese stripper while she's on her knees in the parking lot of a church, who doesn't have the words to pray, doesn't know what she's supposed to pray, but that God in some way heard her prayer, and what God did actually was something that we see happening in the book of Acts. God hears the prayer of the person who is an absolute no, but what God does in that situation is God sends an absolute yes. And my friends, that's the God we worship. We worship a God as in the great uh, theologian Henri de Lubac, who's one of my favorite theologians, he said, Christ, we can call him Savior, that's true, but Christ is first and foremost the great disturber. That God in Christ disturbs us 
He disturbs our man-made religion, our man-made yeses and nos. And what he does is something fascinating. He's on a mission to hear the prayers of those who may be never gonna darken the door of a church, but who maybe will just sit on their knees in the parking lot. So what does this mean for us today? I think it means this. I think we typically think of God's action in the world as something that has to be necessitated and distributed through us, and God wants to use us. But I think what God wants to do is he wants to invite us into the work that he's already doing in the world. And we have an option. We can choose to choose the comfort and predictability and the things that make our world feel safe. We could, and therefore, say no. Or we can have the courage of Peter. And we can have eyes that are wide open to God's action in the world. We can have the courage of Felicia and have eyes wide open to God's action in the world and actually follow this Christ, this great disturber, into the places that me and you would never go, not because we need to bring Jesus there, because Jesus is there and he's saying, I bid you come. I bid you come. I bid you come. I want to pray. And I want to pray that God would be your great disturber. <laughs> that whatever knows you bring in here today, that Christ may have the power to change your no's into yeses, that you would still be faithful, separate, religious, all the things that you are, but that God maybe would call you out of yourself into the world so that may people know that God is love and he is alive. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you, God, that in you is the word yes. We thank you that you've had compassion on all that you made. We thank you, God, that you work in the world for your glory and for your power and your might. And God, we thank you for the example of Peter, who does something that's very uncomfortable based on his upbringing, he goes to see your action in the world and he follows you obediently. We thank you for Felicia who goes to see your action in the world in places that we never would think that you work. But Christ, we know that you are at work in the world in ways that are bigger and more majestic than we can imagine. So God, please do not let our no's get in the way of your yeses. Please inhibit us from using the word no as a way to keep our world safe and predictable. Forgive us and prevent us from using the word no to hinder us from being your people in the world. But may we be a yes people, a people who are known for what we are for, not merely what we're against. May we be about the yes of God in the world so that all people may know your love and grace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen.